edition of Match of the Week, the series within Let Me Tell You Something, in which I, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorca Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, take it in turns to discuss a match from the history of professional wrestling. As was intended, this was supposed to be the second part, and I suppose it still is, of a two-part series of episodes about David and Goliath matches within the world of women's wrestling at times when women's wrestling wasn't as big a story or as big a part of the wrestling landscape in North America. But life events, faulty microphones, holidays, and Dave Meltzer have interfered enough to make it (laughs) so long a gap that you can probably barely remember the first episode. So it might be worth just taking a moment to listen to again what was meant to be the first part of this two-part series, which was... Alundra Blaze against Bull Nakano at SummerSlam 94. Because about 13 years later, I think this was, we're in a different promotion, but it's another David and Goliath battle, but it's of the female persuasion. Simon, what are we talking about today? Uh, We are talking about Gail Kim taking on Awesome Kong. I think it's a TNA final destination, this one. Um, The year I'm a little fuzzy on, I think it's 2005 or 6. I can't remember which. I thought it might have been seven, but you may be right. Either way, yeah. it's more than ten years since Blaze Nakano. But it is the obvious thing to compare it to. There hadn't been... Because obviously the women's wrestling scene, pretty much after um, Alundra Blaze left WWF to go back as Medusa in WCW in a real stop-start women's division that never really formed. And then... The WWF reigniting their women's title essentially as a vanity project for Sable before she dared to, you know, complain. And women (laughs) doing something like that is not to be tolerated. And boy, oh boy, can we talk more about that at the moment, but we're not going to. Oh, yeah. But then, then it got turned into the Divas scene in WWF where there was certain physical requirements in order to be a part of that roster and certain gimmick matches which were designed specifically to titillate the audience in a very different way Mm. actually i was just thinking it is 2007 because they say in the tale of the tape to introduce the match that tna had waited five years before bringing in this women's knockout division and tna didn't start until 2002 Ah, okay, there we go then. Yep, 2007. So, yeah, this is deep into... I don't know if they would have brought in the Divas Championship yet. I think maybe that belt turned up around 2008 time, I might be wrong. But my point is that there hadn't been a woman wrestler in WWF, WWE, during that whole time who had what Awesome Kong and before her Bull Nakano have presented. As I said, after Bull Nakano's run in WWF, they immediately set her up with Bertha Faye, but instead of presenting her as a monster, she was more of a comical character. And yeah. they were trying to redo the Bull Nakano magic with Aja Kong until uh, Lundra Blaze left the promotion before they could even have the match set, set for Royal Rumble 96. So instead of Aja Kong, we've got Awesome Kong. 
And Gail Kim is a fascinating story as well, insofar as she had two runs in the WWE. And when she started on the main roster, it's kind of the problem that the women's division has always had, I think, even to this day, in that the shallowness of the roster meant that it got to the point where almost every woman wrestler that wrestled on WWE TV on a regular basis from about 2002 to 2010 would at some point have a run with the Women's or the Divas Championship. Yeah. And just to go back to the earlier point, just on a little bit of research, 2008 was the year that the uh, Divas Championship was introduced. Mm. And then when they merged the rosters together, it was the Divas Championship that superseded the Women's Championship. Yes. So that was the whole branding exercise at that point. And even the fact that TNA were doing an answer to it and wisely trying to do things differently, and one of the first things you do that are different with that is you introduce a character like Awesome Kong. Six, they make a point that when she enters that she's six foot one inches tall and she comes she's got that Japanese wrestling training and that she's a bit of a mystery because a figure like her wasn't ever going to find a lot of work in wrestling in North America that could make you a living. Yeah. Until TNA decided they wanted to do something different with their women's division. But to get to Gail Kim, Gail Kim was maybe symbolic of that as most of all, which was, and we were talking just before we went on, on the air, on the air, before we started recording, about the perils of starting a debutante in your promotion and having them go after a championship immediately is where is there to go with that person afterwards. Yeah. And Gail Kim literally won the women's championship on her Raw debut. I think the belt was vacant and they had a battle royal and she came out in her sort of Matrix-inspired look, I seem to recall, Mm. and won the title immediately. No way... no. Knowledge of this character, no establishing of this character, nothing like that. Now you can surprise audiences and give them something new and unexpected, but for a championship win to mean something, you have to have seen some sort of journey to get there, I feel. Yeah. And with Gail Kim, there's literally was no connection to them. So I think the WWE, like, we've got the belt on her. Why aren't people reacting? Yeah, I think in that stage of um, WWE's booking decisions at that phase it was more of a prop than it was a title it was just a means to an end rather than something to chase Um, and earn i don't don't know i just i don't know that i agree with that because you know trish stratus whenever she held it it was it was more of a it was more a case of whoever held the belt as to how much concentration they were putting on it really which is a problem to this day like you know you were saying who's been booked better since they lost the AEW tag team titles, the Lucha Bros and Jurassic Express, or the Young Bucks. Mm-hmm. So the championship has to, and the holder have to both be there at the same time. Yeah. And when Trish was holding it, working as a heel, and having literally a, a raw main event against Lita, then the title means something. And because they are protective of the title, you know, because like, there are still very few people that have held the WWE championship. There's more than there used to be. But it wasn't that every person who joins the ro- every male member of the roster at some point to see the challenge for the title on the pay per view or won the title. <laughs> it's an image of Tajiri going for it now. Yeah, yeah. Or someone like Titus O'Neil. 
that was the big problem with the women's division is that the shallowness of the roster and just the same old image like that required aesthetic, especially at this time, you know, like Serena Deeb pointing that out in a promo that she had to have breast implants just to have a chance at being on the main roster. Yeah. And yeah. Mickey James being told by Tommy Dreamer without being told that's what you got to do. You know, mm. it doesn't matter how good you are in the ring. You have to have this aesthetic requirements. Yeah, and uh, th- there was a time where Mickey James was being referred to as like Piggy Piggy James yeah, in like yeah. one feud as well. It was very visual based. But what's funny though is that Awesome Kong did en- end up having a-, a run in the WWE that got unfortunately um, truncated because of events that are outside of both WWE's control and um, Awesome Kong's control herself. Yeah, but it was this TNA run that really led to it. But it was also this TNA run that really gave Gail Kim a character of status and a standing, that then when she re-signed for the WWE, it was that sense of, well, she's earned her stripes now, maybe she'll finally get treated well. She ends up getting treated so badly that she genuinely... Did you remember this story that they had a battle royal and she just left the ring to see if anyone would notice? (laughs) (laughs) Can't say I blame her, though. The only other thing I remember her doing in that run was that she was the one that Daniel Bryan was actually going out with when the Bellas were trying to win his virginity. <laughs> Don't know if you remember that storyline. Ah, uh, not for, I remember it, but not through choice. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it hit the ground running really. The knockouts division, and even there with the knockouts name, I thought that was a very clever branding exercise because it still played up to someone's attractiveness, but instead of it being related to. You know, when people speak of diva behavior, it's not a positive thing. No, it's a word of very negative connotations. But knockout has a sporting aspect to it. So it's almost like gorgeous ladies of wrestling in a weird way or something yeah. along those yeah. lines. You know what I mean? In that whilst there is a, a certain look parameters, there's the sporting aspect to it. They're using a sporting term. At the start of this run with the knockouts title, it was... A statement of intent that not only do they book someone like Awesome Kong and they do do a match that's not based on two hot women being catty at each other or whatever it was about two you know it was David and Goliath the sort of storylines they'll do in male wrestling all the time and you've got a figure in Gail Kim who becomes like the standard bearer for women's wrestling in a, a TNA I think she became a Hall of Famer in Impact Wrestling over time she is, yeah. It was weird. She was like protected to such a great degree in TNA, even like when she made a comeback a couple of years ago. She was still like winning the big matches. Because when she was in WWE, she did have that run with the title, and then she lost it, and then she was just lost in the shuffle for the most part. She did, towards the end of her run, she turned heel, and she did try to invent herself as like a submission specialist, I remember. Hmm. But it, like, it didn't have time enough to reach its end goal of like building her up because i think she was one of those like even when it seemed like mid push i think she was suddenly cut from the roster you know one of those weirder ones that people don't understand and then tna bring her on and like everyone could see the potential and it was tna that kind of brought it out of her and she's great in this whole match she's just this resilient baby face not cowardly and not not cowardly is not the right way but not even um a victim like, she yeah. brawls, and she fights, and she tries to overpower. Like, there's a moment where she's, like, 
pushing Kong around in the hammerlock. Like, she's a bouncer taking control of her. I like that she's fighting all the way. And when the brawl that happens after the ring, it's her that starts the fight after she's just found a way to win the match. Yeah. So whilst with Alundra Blaze, when we watch the match with Bull Nakano, it's mostly her taking a shit kicking and then just dodging a move and then hitting a quick finishing winner very often with the German suplex. With Kong... She's constantly having to fight away Kim. It's funny because you can tell if you watch it in the replay, the first spots are blown spots. It was yeah. meant to be that Kong charges her, Kim catches her and drops her neck first on the top rope, but she loses the grip. And so instead they play it off as if she's been slammed down and they have an awkward kind of shuffle period where she's grabbing at her boots, trying to get her in the ring and they're trying to yeah. you know, get to where they want to get. But that's another thing that's a big statement of intent with this match is the fact that they give them they give them like 15 minutes. The whole angle from start to finish is about 20 minutes, which is a lot of time that most, you know, women's wrestling matches, even with Trish Stratus, rarely were allowed to go over 10 minutes. Yeah. Let alone on a, you know, be a prominent figure on a pay-per-view. And also, as you say, have a gimmick that's not bra and panty. And they, there have been a couple of those, I guess. Most obviously, Trish Stratus and Victoria had a hardcore match at Survivor Series 2002. But again, it was kind of more the novelty of look at these women having this match. Whereas this yeah. is like, this is the appropriate gimmick for the state of this feud. Yes. And it's like when they had the first Hell in the Cell match with Sasha Banks and Charlotte Flair when they were doing all this, look at this great stuff we're doing for women. It's like, oh, okay. But it was more just a case of that they're having the Hell in the Cell match, not that the level of hatred they have for each other can now only be contained in a cell. Yeah. But that, of course, also became the problem with the nature of Hell in a Cell becoming an annual thing anyway. So that was a problem both with women and with men and with women. Yeah. But with this one, it's meant to be, look how important it is for them. You know, those things did drive me crazy. They even did it, like the last of those really was when they had Banks and Belair main events and they both kind of had a moment to cry. And I get it. I get why it was there, but I was kind of like, I'd just rather it be two athletes there because that's what they deserve to be there for. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I I do think there was towards quite recently in WWE, there was a lot of, we need to tick this women's box. We need to tick this women's box. We need to tick this women's box. Just making up for lost time almost too quickly. Like they were congratulating themselves for doing stuff in like 2016 that TNA were doing seven, eight, nine years earlier. Yeah, yeah. There was never any need for a knockouts revolution in TNA. They were always treated as wrestlers who were women. Yeah. And, I mean, they again, they, they had peaks and troughs, but I, again, I don't recall any real Piggy James situations in the women in the knockout. To be fair, I wasn't paying... I'd never paid full attention to TNA at the time, but I can't recall, even if Vince Russo was in charge, they were put they, they had much in the way of bra and panties matches or anything along those lines. Maybe maybe the Beautiful People did do something along those... Well, actually, I do remember they had the Beautiful People do a mud wrestling match amongst themselves. That's yeah. one thing I do remember. That was when uh, Lacey Von Erich was in the group. Mm. So there was some of that. And that was... I think that was... The Bischoff era, maybe. So, I mean, Tracy Brooks was involved in the bikini contest. Granted, it was against Eric Young, and she did lose. But that was, I think, that was pre. I, pre, I think pretty much all of Tracy Brooks's stuff, almost all of it, was pre there being a knockouts title. Unfortunately for her, mm. she was one of those people. Wrong place, wrong time. As far as getting to do everything that she wanted to do. Yeah. 
unfortunately. But Gail Kim was in the right place at the right time when they were looking to build something. And because um, I remember, I think they had the rubber match because they'd done the setup of this was that Kong had like destroyed her on a debut in a non-title match, and then it's like, mm. how's Kim gonna be able to not get dominated again? Yeah. And that's just by bringing the fight to Kong, and I do like how they pay how she gets her victory, which we'll get to a bit later on. Yeah, I mean, the, when they had the rubber match, I think they built it up, and it was like the main event. I think it might have been a steel cage match. I might be wrong there. And in main evented Impact, again, I think I was probably before. Well, no, it wouldn't have been before actually. Maybe the Trish Stratus Lita one was around the same time or a bit before that. One of the things I remember them doing in the build-up was they were getting the opinions of other members of the roster, like male members of the roster, yeah, giving their, like Kurt Angle and the like, giving their informed opinions because they're genuinely interested on a sporting level who's going to win this match between the two of them. Yeah, and that's that's what makes it, it's what made it stand out comparatively to WWE at the time. And that's why compared to some of the WWE content going on at the time, it's aged very well. How would you compare it as well to the Blaze Nakano matches? It seems like the natural progression. Like if Blaze Nakano had happened during the Attitude Era, maybe this is the match they would have had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to compare in one sense because one was a straight wrestling match, one was no DQ. This has a bit more of a wildness to it, but that's, that's Kim's scrappy nature more than like quality of moves or anything like that that's a good point actually because alundra blaze even though she was the david in the david and goliath match she was always very tall you know she had almost like yeah. only in proportions herself in a way whereas kim is you know visibly under five foot six or so yeah whereas i think alundra blaze was like five ten and bull nakana would have been maybe no taller than that even with her hair <laughs> mm. <laughs> So you're right, there is... But again, I think Gail Kim gets a lot more in this match than Blaze got in her matches. Yeah. And it was more of and it was more of a reaction, because I was saying, the thing you noticed with the Blaze and the Kana was, like, they had their formula. And it's like, well, we'll fit that formula into a five-minute match, and we'll fit it into a seven-minute match or a 13-minute match if it's a house show. Mm. Whereas this felt like it was produced for this match at this time. I mean, I haven't watched either match, the match on either side, but my guess is they had enough creative variables... Because they're working with different gimmicks as well, so that also sparks more creativity rather than just Blaze Nakano, have your match, you've got six minutes. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have to like go off, off the same template and because the matches are all different gimmicks and because they're given a bit more time and freedom to develop different things each time. Uh, and because the crowd are really into it as well. Like, the... The Blaze Nakano match, you hear the crowd, but you don't hear the crowd as much as you hear the crowd this time. And obviously, advancements in how like the crowd are mics and blah, 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 different arenas and everything. But the crowd are just simply more into this Kong Kim match, I think, anyway. Were you a fan of TNA at this time? I know you had a period of watching it like because it was on Challenger, I think. So it was actually the wrestling... You got to watch more than anything. Yeah. So, like me with WCW in the early nineties when that was on ITV. I saw bits of TNA around this time. It was a little bit more later on. Like you're more. Oh, yes, yeah, so 07 was around the time I was like most into TNA. So this would have been my time, sort of thing. So, do you remember having fond memories of this match? Do you remember this surprising you at the time, or 
Were you a Gail Kim fan? Were you a Knockouts Division fan, really? At the time, I was more focused on your Styles, your Joes, your Daniels and Angles and stuff like that. This was just like an accoutrement. I wasn't seeking this out, but when I saw it, I liked it. And that's going to get to one of the things that is usually something I don't enjoy in matches, but they actually made it work in this, which is wrestlers beating up referees when they don't do what they wanted them to do. Mm. I always found that as an excuse, and it was in this as like an excuse for like a second referee to be in there. And for there to be like a missed spot, you know, a downed referee, you know, which is the dear of a lot of lazy wrestling. Yeah. But with this, it worked because A, the slick Johnson character was unique in the presentation of referees anyway. More refs should wear shorts. Well, he's the only one that did, wasn't he? And he was like... Uh, 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 Ken Shamrock. I mean, technically an enforcer, not a ref. But that's my point. He's not like a regular everyday... Like, he comes when he referees. That's his thing. Yeah. You know, the only, the only other ref that's kind of got their thing, I suppose, is Red Shoes. Oh, yes, Red Shoes. Mike Jones, and also Mike Jones is visibly bigger. I'm assuming he was a wrestler at some point as well. Because didn't he get involved? As, didn't he wrestle at one point? Yes. Did he feud with Eric Young or someone? It's usually Eric Young. Such a, such a utility belt he was. But that also works with Kong then manhandling him. Because it's not just that she's beating up any old ref. She's beating up a ref that's quite bold and big. Ref, and, yeah. yeah, and she's intimidating him throughout it. And that again puts across how unique she is in the women's division. And to the you know, and they even briefly put her up against men. I think her angle basically requested to have a match with her because of what he could do. Yeah. And she got involved, I think, in at least one men's battle royal in TNA and obviously famously was in the WWE Royal Rumble. Yes. Didn't she eliminated Michael Cole or Michael Cole ran away, didn't she, didn't he? And... I think I think he ran off. But yeah, she's she's one of those few women. Um I think it's only like Beth. Nia Jax. I mean, that's the thing as well. You look at Nia Jax and everyone was always like... Because she was kind of similar size to Kong, I suppose. Yeah. But she just never had nearly as much athleticism behind her. You know, you could tell that Kong could move. She could, she'd done the Japanese training. Yes. She was able to do these moves. And she had strength. That was the big problem with Nia Jax, wasn't it? That they positioned her as this monster. But it was clear that she wasn't actually that strong. Mm. Which led to quite a few accidents yes let's be nice and call them that but that also works because she's so furious and she's so like taking her eye off the ball that then when she goes to powerbomb the second ref gail kim finds the opening trips her up and what i love i don't even know if that was how it was intentional but it worked in there was that the ref lands on top of her when she does it so it's like the ref wins her so she takes a move as well so that when she's being held down because sometimes when big people get held down for a pin it's a little bit like, why are they... How? How is this working? Yeah. Why are they saying like that? Even as much as people love the match, the roll-up that Ric Flair pins Vader with in their Starcade 93 match is not... It's not as bad as how Owen manages to get pinned by Steve Austin at SummerSlam 97, but it's not that far yeah, off. Yeah. This is the gold standard of that kind of pin, I think. And it, And you're right, it's her own rage that, like, so, so there's logic to her getting a roll-up win in terms of oh, not just Blaze missed a move, uh, well, dodged a Nakano move and, and got a suplex. But in theory, she, she'd just been systematically battered for a good few minutes. Uh, yeah, you know, 
I mean, how far do you pull the thread of logic in wrestling, I guess, but... Well, you want to talk about pulling the thread of logic as well. At one point, Kim uh, hits her over the head with an empty Coke bottle. Yeah. And whilst you can get some good welly on those, especially if you're, like, trying to annoy your younger brother, not back in the day, I, yeah. I think Kong might oversold that a bit. But I do love throughout the whole match, the story is Kim knowing she's got to take advantage of openings. Yes. You know, the blown spot at the start, but it's like her dodging a charge at one point or uh, hitting a dive when she needs to, or like being caught in a dive. And uh, that's the other end of it, that not only you for your great David versus Goliath battles, like all the great ones that Brock Lesnar's had with likes of AJ Styles, Daniel Bryan, uh, and others in WWE, the best ones are ones where they take those nasty bumps. Mm that you just like, how are they going to recover from this? And there are a few of those that Kim takes in this match. Like when Awesome Kong grabs her and just swings her into the barricade. Oh, that's a nasty looking spot, isn't it? And then like, just whenever she gets like... Slammed on the apron when Awesome Kong catches her in a dive. Yeah. Chair shots as well. Like Kong doesn't really land many chair shots, but she she lands like a choke slam on Kim right near the end. And you're like, oh, that, that, that should be the one, really. But again, it's like, it's that whole chopping down the tree as well, and Kim does hit her with a series of chair shots and a top rope splash, and that's still not enough to put her away. Yeah. There are a couple of really good last-minute kickouts in this match, which, again, is something you won't, you know, you you give a match in a high status because you're giving it all the false finishes. That's usually a sign of how high status the match is in the setup. So again, it's something that I don't recall a lot of great false finishes or anything. It's either Trish hits the Stratisfaction and that's the end, or Leeds hits the Moonsault, that's the end. There's mm. no kicking out of massive moves in in women's matches at the time that I can recall. I'm sure they've done that since then, because they've all done the WrestleMania main event style matches and the shocked expressions. Yes, yes. Well, we know that obviously Ruby Riot got taken to task online for doing that in, in a bit too much, <laughs> but... That's not a problem with her. That's a problem with wrestling in general. Yeah, everyone does it. That, again, again, like the Hell in a Cell point you made earlier, that's not a women's problem. That's a creative problem. Yeah, I just thought the brawl in the crowd, which sometimes can feel quite aimless, especially when... And that was my... Which was kind of a bit of a criticism I had for the whole Anarchy in the Arena match. This one, it felt, you know, because it was just a single... It's a lot easier points. to shoot from a camera perspective. Yeah, a lot easier to shoot in the Asylum. That was always a nice... Was it was it called the Asylum? This or the TNA? What was it called? Oh, it was Universal Studios. The Studio Soundstage, Soundstage Nineteen, I think. Yeah. yeah. But didn't they give it a nickname? I can't remember. Maybe that was the old one that they had in Tennessee at the in the early days. That's, that sounds more right. Yeah, but it was a good setup. It was good. It reminded me of the old WCW Saturday Night and and Worldwide shows. Yeah. And the crowd was always up for it for the most part. I seem to recall. They would go for it in these matches. And they reacted to everything. Mm. So yeah, I think this is a match that maybe definitely stands the test of time and I think is more historically significant than people maybe give it credit for. Doing so many of the things the WWE expected standing ovations for eight eight years later. (laughs) Yes. Look at us. We, We treat them more like, you know, equals. Well, I do think that sometimes people do complain about TNA making Gail Kim out to be like the second coming. But within the within TNA, she truly was. And it's so fascinating seeing the level of difference in someone's performance when they're motivated and given the chance compared to when you're told no, no in certain terms, they don't really give a shit about you. When you literally 
DOS off of work on live television to see if anyone will notice. When the only reason the guy running the company even gave you a chance in the first place was when he found out about fetish porn websites, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I did wonder when you'd reference that in this episode. Uh, I'm amazed it took this long. <laughs> yeah, the writing was on the wall for Gale at the start, really, with that. But, um, yeah, I think if you want to talk great moments in women's wrestling that get you from... If you want to do that book that takes you from Fabulous Moolah to Bianca Belair, I suppose, from one end to the other, it's a match like this that should get more respect than it's maybe due. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the many people would think should get more respect than it gets, I think. It takes what Blaze and Nakano were doing and builds on it. Takes it to the next level. I mean, I, I know Awesome Kong does the Aja Kong spinning back fist in this match, but I'm guessing she was as much inspired by Nakano as she was at anyone else. Yeah, well, maybe Gail Kim wasn't that inspired by Alundra Blaze, I don't know. But she was like the she was like if, if WWE had done an Alundra Blaze right, that's essentially what Gail Kim was in TNA, really, I suppose. Absolutely. But yeah, I don't have much more to say at this point. Do you, Simon? Uh, no, no, nothing to add. Okay, well, for the next episode, assuming there are no five-star matches in the interim, and somehow a series of matches involving AEW and New Japan talent doesn't look like it's going to give us a match of that caliber by the looks of things and also given what uh the blocks look like for the g1 climax we might not even get that many in in august either no so if we don't have any five-star matches in the interim we're going back to silver screen visions and we are going to is this our first foreign language for silver screen visions yes it is yes yes it's mostly been quite british and domestic so far but you can get much further than that with this next one we what ma- what movie? It's a, it's booked as a match in the title. It's a handicap match as well. Simon, what movie are we going to be doing for Silver Screen Visions next week? It's Al Santo and the Blue Demon versus the Monsters. Yes, we're going into the world of Mexican wrestling movies. El Santo, the man in the silver mask. The genuine, still to this day, revered historical figure in Mexican culture. And star of over, according to Jonathan Ross, 150 movies. (laughs) And we had to pick only one of them. We went for that one. If you look it up on YouTube, you might be able to somehow find a copy of it for yourself as well to watch if you want to watch along with us. Oh, yes. Assuming there are no five-star matches, that is what we'll be talking about next week. But there's nothing left to say until that time now except the sign if people want to get in touch with you how can they do so uh they can get in touch with me on twitter where i'm so known as simon cross free free for the number of hr complaints awesome kong would have had filed against her for putting her hands on match officials <laughs> my name's lorcan Munnell. that's l-o-r-c-a-n-m-u-l-l-a as in the a at the start of awesome n that's the second letter but the first letter you pronounce in knockouts that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And if you fancy throwing a few pennies our way so that we can pay for Impact Wrestling subscriptions or whatever else it is we need to see to watch these matches, then by all means go to our patreon.com slash lmtyspod. All that's left to say at this point then is that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.